Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. Let me tease out one thing here. So tomorrow, I'm sitting down for our Beat Army edition of the podcast with Coach Nia Matalolo and quarterback Malcolm Perry. Wow. Uh, in the afternoon after our event, the uh, Defense Forum Washington is in the morning, right? It's going to be awesome. So if you're, I'll try to make this live this afternoon so that maybe people will hear about the Defense Forum Washington that happens basically tomorrow morning, Thursday morning, December 5th, at the museum in Washington, D.C. It's going to be amazing. Correct. We have Undersecretary, Acting Secretary Modley is going to be one of the keynotes. We have CNO. Uh, Bob Work is one of the uh, the moderators who's the chairman of our board of directors. All the right people about the topics that are relevant right now at the right time. So it's a uniquely Naval Institute type of event. So if you're a journalist who covers this beat, or if you're a member of the Naval Institute or a naval professional, you need to be there tomorrow for the Defense Forum Washington. So that's part A. Part B is, as I'm saying, Beat Army podcast with two major players in that contest coming up on December 14th. So very excited about that. It'll be taking place over in Ricketts Hall in person with uh, with those guys. Um, so stand by for that as well. Yeah, fantastic. That'll be great. Uh, before we get to our guest who's in the studio with us today, I wanted to uh, um, mention some sad news that we just got this morning that a uh, long time Naval Institute member, Naval Institute author, proceedings author, uh, Wayne Hughes, Captain Wayne Hughes, uh, U.S. Navy retired, uh, who is a uh, was a professor emeritus and um, a dean at the Naval Postgraduate School and author of Fleet Tactics and Naval Operations, the Bible of of uh, naval tactics. Uh, Wayne Hughes has uh, has died. Uh, it happened yesterday out in uh, Monterey, California. Uh, we found out a few months ago that Wayne, he, he let us know that he was uh, sick. And uh, so this was not unexpected, but the, the timing was a little bit probably faster, sooner than we uh, than we thought. And um, everyone who knows Wayne, who has worked with him here at the Naval Institute, uh, either in the proceedings team, the Naval history team, or the press team, uh, we're all, uh, you know, sort of a bit shocked and, and uh, definitely mourning his passing because he was just an amazing person, an amazing, a prolific, prolific author who made a real impact on the naval profession over the last over 50 years. I was a naval Academy graduate class of, uh, I think, 57 or 58, late 50s, uh, served on active duty, retired, and then has taught at NPS and written for us um, books. Uh, edited books, written in proceedings. We had a great uh, conversation with him that uh, Chris Nelson, Commander Chris Nelson, did in proceedings about a year and a half ago, where Chris did a great interview with uh, with Wayne. Uh, we'll be posting some of that content on our social media sites today and tomorrow. Uh, but if you are not familiar with Wayne Hughes, I recommend you get a copy of Fleet Tactics, Naval Operations, and read it. Uh, take a look through our archives and look at all the stuff that Wayne has written for proceedings over the years. Uh, you will be smarter and a better naval officer for it. And the good news is his legacy will live on because of his writings. Um, and that's the power of the forum. But as you've said, Bill, uh, a, a real a loss of a giant for the community and for professionals everywhere. 
Amen. Amen. Okay, well, let's uh, get to our guest. Uh, in the studio this morning is uh, Commander Brendan Stickles, who is the editorial board chair of the Naval Institute. Uh, and he's the author of an article that shows up in the December issue of Proceedings on page 16 called The Economics of the American Hero. Brendan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I was on here uh, once prior uh, last year talking about uh, talking about economics as well, and it's, uh, it's an honor to be back. Yeah, so, so this article starts off, uh, Economics of the American Hero, There Will Never Be Another Jack Lucas. That so is true. Who's, who is Jack Lucas? So I, uh, I stumbled across Jack Lucas when I was a junior officer. I was uh, stationed in Japan, flying jets off uh, the USS Kitty Hawk, and we used to practice uh, carrier landings on the island of Iwo Jima. So we'd spend about a week out there before each at sea period at uh, flying camp. So flying late at night, then spending the days crawling around the beaches of Iwo and exploring the caves. And uh, on one of those trips, I brought with me the uh, the Bible of Heroism, uh, a list of every Medal of Honor winner in the United States. And there was 27 from the Battle of Iwo Jima. So uh, during the week out there, um, I looked in the index, found Iwo Jima and read, the, and read each of those citations. And uh, on a subsequent trip, I read the book um, Flags of Our Fathers, a famous, famous uh, book, The Story of Iwo Jima. And in that, I read the story of Jack Lucas, which they, uh, they bury the lead in his, uh, in his citation. He's, uh, he's give, he's, he was awarded the Medal of Honor for jumping on two grenades um, to save his, uh, his buddies. And, uh, but what it doesn't mention is the background prior to Jack Lucas. And so uh, I stumbled across the Jack Lucas story as a J.O. and uh, have, been, uh, have been stewing on it ever since. And so it's, uh, it's, it's really an unbelievable, and he's one of, the, uh, one of the greatest Americans to ever live. When you talk about why you went to Iwo Jima just in terms of current ops, because I'm used to flying like 13 DME to get to Fentress out of Oceana. Um, talk about what went into the field carrier landing practice at Iwo Jima. I mean, that was not 13 DME away from, for instance, NAS Atsugi. I mean, that's quite an effort to go bounce. No, it's, um, it was really, it, it was a privilege to go there. So it's several hundred miles south of, of mainland Japan and several hundred miles north of Guam and the island of Tinian. So the reason Iwo Jima, the battle took place is that it's the, it's the halfway point between Tinian where, I think it's called, uh, it's Tinian, the, yes. uh, the, the island where the Enola took off to uh, drop the atomic bomb um, and, uh, and Hiroshima. So I, I, I think it's about 600 miles ward um, south of mainland Japan. So it's literally a eight mile square volcanic island in the middle of the Pacific. The Japanese treated it during World War II as uh, the first island in Japan, which is why they defended it so aggressively. And uh, it was such a strategic point for us because the uh, we couldn't have dropped the atomic bomb if there was Japanese fighter jets taking off out of Iwa. There was two airfields on the field at the time. So as a, uh, this is in 2003, 2006, um, that I was going there as a young lieutenant. Uh, so now there's one airfield there. Because the jets are so noisy, we couldn't do touch-and-goes and practice landing on the carrier in mainland Japan. So they would they would basically send us into the middle of the ocean to do touch-and-goes and, and practice for the carrier. For for those of you who've, uh, who, who, who don't know that, they literally paint an aircraft carrier on the runway, and we practice landing on it, and, uh, and landing signal officers stand at the end of the runway and grade you. Um, what, made, what made Iwo Jima exciting is that it's, it's literally blue water in that uh, there is no divert and so to, to do touch and goes you need to have a, a low amount of gas um, and that prevents you from going to any other airfield so as soon as you take off you're committed to coming back to Iwo so it's a uh, like I said there were seven 27 Medal of Honor winners and tens of thousands of people lost their lives so uh, so it's it's obviously no comparison but in the uh, in this soft world we live in where you're taking off with a jet 
in the United States and you're used to 15 different divert fields and lots of options. Um, at UO, it, 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 it tends to get a little bit exciting uh, as soon as you go, uh, go wheels up. So what's the topography there? What, what first time you saw it, what, what were you struck by? So that's a great question. So uh, it's um, Mount Suribachi is, uh, is the, is the highest point famous for, uh, for uh, the raising of the flag that turned into the Marine Corps Mor- Memorial. It's black volcanic sand. So the sand is very fine and, and, and jet black. What's really startling is that the Japanese uh, treat the island as a shrine, um, and so they haven't done any removal of the equipment. So there's literally still amphibious vehicles um, now decaying after after 80 years um, on the beach. You can you can if you're walking around a field, you will find helmets and 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 scraps of metal as if it, it really feels like you're walking around a, a a World War II historic battlefield that very few people get to go to. So, like I said, as a as a young lieutenant trying to figure out leadership and trying to figure out development and thinking about the sacrifice that uh, the greatest generation made, it was a it was a formative experience um, for me to go there. So, spoiler alert for our readers, our listeners who haven't read the article yet, but Jack Lucas is a young Marine. We'll, we'll get to how young in a minute. Uh, young Marine, he's, he's in battle in Iwo Jima. Uh, a couple of uh, Japanese grenades arrive in the foxhole with him and his, uh, his, his three uh, buddies. He dives on grenades, and uh, the one explodes. Uh, his buddies go on to fight the battle as the battle is sort of being mopped up. They go back to retrieve his dog tags and to, um, you know, sort of verify his death. Uh, and they find out that he is actually still alive. He is still alive. So clutched in one of his hands is an unexploded grenade. So the two grenades that he jumped on, one turned out to be a dud. The, uh, the grenade that exploded, um, he took in his right side. Um, but as the uh, Marines at the time said, he was, uh, he was too young and too stupid to die. So he was very much alive. They got him out to a hospital ship. And 21 surgeries later, he survived. And uh, not only did he survive, he thrived. He went on to live a, a long and productive life and, uh, and, and died of natural causes in 2008. Still at the time, setting off metal detectors when he went through airports from all the shrapnel in his chest. Um, but what's fu- what, what that made it really fun as a uh, an amateur historian to read his Medal of Honor citation, read about his actions in a book. But now you can go on YouTube and literally g- like Google Jack Lucas and watch interviews with him in his 60s and 70s, talking about the instance and talking about being a Marine um, and talking about life. So it's a he's he's a, he's an unbelievable story. So the reason he lived so long is because he joined amazingly young so that's like and that's and that's what the uh and and that's what i came to discover over the course of my career as a young lieutenant i had a huge uh man crush on jack lucas and uh, i i i fell into the trap of man they don't make them like they used to i'd give anything to have a couple of jack lucases in in my squadron but the fact is jack lucas was a runaway middle schooler he uh he joined the marine corps when he was 14 years old he forged his parents his mother's signature uh fast talked his way into paris island and then was assigned as a truck driver in San Diego as a 16-year-old. Um, rumor was that uh, Iwo was going to be the deciding battle of the war. So he went AWOL, abandoned his post, stowed away aboard a ship where uh, the other Marines um, hid him and fed him bread. Um, so he was he was busted down in rank back in San Diego and was being processed for desertion. In, a, in absentia. In absentia. When he, uh, when he stormed the beaches... Um, got himself a weapon and started fighting the Japanese on Iwo Jima um, and then jumped on a grenade, won the Medal of Honor, became a national hero and, uh, and lived a long and fruitful life. So what, what I thought, so again, as a lieutenant, I, I couldn't, I, 
I, I was fascinated with, with the Jack Lucas story. So, but when he was awarded the Medal of Honor, when he bestowed the Medal of Honor, he was 17 years old. So he was 17. He turned 17 <laughs> on board the uh, on board the ship. Uh, so the ship left San Diego, pulled into Hawaii, left Hawaii. On the trip between Hawaii and San Diego, he celebrated his 17th birthday, hidden on board the ship by his fellow Marines. And then six days after his 17th birthday was when he threw himself on top of those two grenades. So you, you go on in this article to say, uh, so... so it, I'm going to read a little bit here. So after the war, while his peers went to college on the GI Bill, Jack continued his education by starting high school as a freshman. As a freshman in high school. With the Medal of Honor. That's right. He, he, uh, he probably had some interesting, what did you do on your summer vacation stories? Oh, unbelievable. <laughs> so uh, there'll never be another Jack Lucas. Of this we can be certain, but Jack's story begs a question. What was a 14-year-old doing in the United States Marine Corps? And you say the answer is less about 7 December 1941 and more about 24 October 1929. Less about Pearl Harbor, more about small towns across America, less about the Great War, and more about the Great Depression. Talk to us about that. So if uh, my, my, my question was, well, two things. One is that um, I... As a lieutenant, like I said, I love Jack Lucas. As a commander and the commanding officer, the last person I would want in my squadron is a runaway middle schooler. I hate to be disrespectful to the memory of Jack Lucas. And like I said, I love him. Fascinating, wonderful American. If we're going to build our Pacific battle plans, expecting middle schoolers to forge their parents' signature and join the Marine Corps and join the Navy, like that is not a scalable or replicable model. And uh, so as a leader, um, you know, I, I long for Jack Lucas, but at the same time, that is not, that is not who we want. And so what I, the question I asked is, hey, if the Great Depression built the greatest generation and, and, and put people like Jack Lucas into those extreme circumstances, the next great economic shock, the great recession, the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009, what kind of people did they put into the military? And is there any comparisons we can draw? And so this didn't start out as an idealistic article about uh, the modern military. It started out with me asking that question. Hey, if the Great Depression produced Jack Lucas, what kind of, of soldiers, Marines, and sailors, and airmen did the Great Recession produce? And how, as a leader, can we, uh, can we manage that talent and, and, and prepare for, uh, for the next Great War? So one of the questions, or I think one of the differences, is you, at an accession source, you can't simply forge your parents' signature and join the military, right? I mean, there are other things. I'm not exactly sure. I imagine you have to have a birth certificate or, or some yep. sort of proof of citizenship or, yep. or green card or whatever uh, to get in the military, right? You can't just forge your parents' signature as a mature-looking 14-year-old and go through Paris Island and, and be on your way, right? So that, that would be a major difference these days that would prevent a 14-year-old. Like you said, you don't want a middle schooler coming out of A school as one of your ordies, you know? So I don't, I don't, know, the, I don't know the facts behind this, so I'm, I'm speculating, but um, I, I think that while the Jack Lucas story is a story of heroism, it's also a story of horrendous leadership, starting with the recruiter who was sitting across the desk from a child that allowed him to process that paperwork. So there was obviously pressure on that human being to fill the ranks. There was obviously uh, egregious oversight on the process, um, but uh, but it's child abuse. You know, go watch a middle school football game, and the biggest kid on the field still looks like a child. And so there's no circumstance. Now we we glamorize it. So all the books about Jack Lucas talk about him being a a big bone, strong, uh, fast talking 
uh, mature 14-year-old who fast, quote-unquote, fast-talked his way into the Marines. Like, got it. I agree with that. But at the same time, like, there's there was some egregious oversight on, on the process as well. Yeah. I'm, I mean, but as I look at the pictures that accompany this article, he doesn't look like a 17-year-old. That's right. right. So no, let's he's, imagine he's, he's that three years before this, he didn't look like a 14-year-old. And everybody, and right? frankly, they were allowing 17-year-olds to join. So the delta between a 17-year-old who looks young and a 14-year-old who looks old, again, it, I don't think it was necessarily uh, vindictive or malicious, but at the, but they were expanding ranks yeah. at such a rapid pace post-Pearl uh, Harbor that um, that obviously some corners were cut that uh, that allowed for for people to come in and if jack lucas he couldn't have been the only 14 year old to make it through right so we're talking about right. him because his story has a happy ending i'm sure that in in europe and also in the pacific there were other um children who 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 made it through um that that um didn't didn't come to a, such a positive result but yeah. but it's a uh, but yes it's a but it's it's a it's it's shocking to think about so you go on to write ironically the key to finding the next generation of Heroes comes not from the story of when Jack, Jack Lucas was born, but instead from the day that he died, the story of the day that he died. On that day, 5 June 2008, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was at 12,604. Unemployment was strong, and the geopolitical picture was as stable as it had been since September 2001. And within a year, the Dow would fall basically to half. Unemployment and student debt would skyrocket. Middle-class wages would continue their great stagnation. The Great Recession was upon us. It would have lasting effects across society, especially in the dynamics of the all-volunteer force. Move on from there you got to, to where we are now economically and also with uh, uh, military recruitment and retention. Sure. So those so two once-in-a-century things happened in the 2008-2009 time frame. The stock market got cut in half in a 12-month period. Um, and then in 2008, war deaths peaked in Iraq, and in 2009, war deaths peaked in Afghanistan. So uh, the two most violent um, circumstances in, in, as far as deaths in the military coincided with the biggest economic shock since the Great Recession. So that drove um, a couple different socioeconomic factors that, uh, that, that changed the dynamic of the all-volunteer force. So my thesis is that while you'll never have another Jack Lucas – those two things did put people into the military that that are the next generation of American heroes um, that Jack Lucas would would surely be, be proud of. So the real the three the three parts of that crux is that uh, we in the United States are blessed with an increasing population. So um, we're also cursed with some middle class uh, stagnation and lack of social mobility that makes the military look like a very attractive option for a variety of reasons. And then while there's challenges to having a, a, a very diverse force, um, we are through I, – I believe we are through the woods with those challenges and now starting to really reap the benefits of, uh, of diversity, both with a, with a by increasing the size of the pool that we're recruiting from and then having a commensurate increase in the talent of people. So those three things that all spawned around the Great uh, Recession, an increasing population with a decreasing force uh, structure, middle class um, economic stagnation. Um, that made the military an attractive option for the the demographic that traditionally joins all volunteer force, and then the, and then reaping the benefits of diversity have created a force that's much different from the way Jack Lucas uh, looked and and the the force during the time he served, but still uh, but still is producing people with uh, with um, the the backbone and the uh, and the talent to be just as uh, heroic. 
So normally at a time when, you know, regardless of your politics, you can't argue with the fact that the Dow is at an all-time high. That's right. right? The markets are at an all-time high. Unemployment right now is at a 50-year low, 50 or 60-year low at 3.9 or 3.8 percent. Um, and wages have started to grow, uh, and un- you know unemployment's low. So normally at those times when the economy's good and unemployment is low, military recruitment and retention falls off because it's easier to find a job, and and uh, you know by most standards, it's easier to get a job or to to work in the civilian economy than it is in in the military, where the demands are extremely high on your time, uh, and you know the potential payout is uh, is to pay with your with your blood, right? Uh, so normally, when the re- when the economy is great, you know it's harder for the for the military to recruit and retain talent. But right now, there's that's not happening. That's not so. I, so I I think that the uh, the middle class. There's a lot of research going on about the middle class stagnation. So in in if you're one of the ten percent of the richest Americans, your pay has gone up about seventy percent since 1990. If you're one of the poorest. Uh, 10% of America, your pay has gone out about the same. So the richest and poorest in America, um, their salary has increased. The middle three um, quintiles have, have not. They've gone up about 40%. And so that's that middle class squeeze that that is is well publicized, especially in the presidential campaign. On the, on the campaign trail, um, uh, the income inequality discussion, that that's what they're referring to. The since 2001, the military has, has solved those problems. And so if you think about the military, we've removed health care from the equation. We have a zip code adjusted housing allowance that can't go down uh, by statute, but can get go up and adjust to um, inflation. And then we've also uh, solved for education with the GI Bill. And then also uh, with the ability to transfer the GI Bill to your next generation, which uh, which has a lot to do with that. And so the things that in, in, since 2001, the things that you want in America have gotten less expensive: televisions, cell phones, the things you, that you need, whether it be healthcare, uh, education, medical services, uh, or housing and food, have all increased um, higher than the rate of inflation. So the military has, in my, in my thesis, is that the military has become really the last bastion of middle class social mobility by removing those equations that have stagnated the middle class for the civilian population and for able-bodied people that are willing to work hard, serve their country. Um, it, it gives you the opportunity to make a better life for yourself and a better life for your children. And I think that the best recruiting tool that we got was that financial crisis of 2008-2009, where people went home to their hometown, saw unemployment, saw crushing student loan debt, uh, saw people uh, living paycheck to paycheck, and then given the opportunity to serve for whether it be five years or 20 years or 30 um, saw that as as less of a well. I guess I'll like I can't find a job. I guess I'll go join the military instead. We just got very talented people saying, "Man, you mean to tell me I can have this great job for five years, pay off my student loans, go to grad school for free, or go go to school for free, and then if I stay in, I can I can prevent my my children from having to take on this crushing student d- debt by transferring the GI Bill." So all of those middle class social ills that happened. Um, in the Great Recession, have uh, have have proved a, a significant tailwind for us uh, recruiting in the Navy and Marine Corps. Yes, we had Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy Russ Smith on the program what maybe five six months ago, and one of the things we were talking about was recruit recruiting and retention and growing the force, the the enlisted force, particularly uh, to to meet a growing Navy demand as we're adding more ships to the Navy. I'm not sure we'll get to 355, but we are growing the Navy. It needs more. We need more recruits, right? And and he talked about the fact. That that retention right now 
which in our careers, you know, sort of historically had always been first, first term retention, 20, 25%, 30% was great. Now it's at 78%, which is unbelievable, right? Sure. 78% of the people who come in on a first term are staying for a second term. So that's, so that's, it's, and, and th- thank God, frankly, that it is that high because unlike, um, it's not 1860. So we're not treating, we're not training sailors to, to pick up heavy things and put them down in different places. We're training sailors to fight with complex machinery and, uh, and maintain a billion dollar war fighting vessels. And so that, that requires a lot of training. So it's more expensive to train people. Um, we, that, re- that, that return on investment only makes sense if we have a, a significant increase. Um, um, the, the the number I think is shocking. There's a lot of woe is me about growing the Navy. It's like, well, we got to grow the Navy. And so we're going to have to really make some changes. I don't think that's true. And so right now, approximately in America, there's 330 million people and there's 330,000 sailors. It's almost exactly one tenth of 1%, which if you compare the size of the Navy during the Cold War on the day the Berlin Wall fell compared to population, we're, uh, we're less than half the size of the Navy at the time. So it's been a 230% um, uh, increase, it would be a 230% increase to get the Navy to the same size based on population. And so I, I really think that as compared to other country, countries that aren't nations of immigrants that have stagnating or decreasing populations, the fact that our population is expanding, um, we can grow the Navy by maintaining that one-tenth of 1% of the overall U.S. population. And that is such a small fraction of Americans that are serving uh, in the maritime services in uniform um, that we can we can get bigger and then also get better. When we had you on the show a, a year, year and a half ago or so, uh, you were also talking about economics and you mentioned that the sailor of the year in your squadron was a woman. And you talked a little bit about her you know, demographically. She was older. She didn't enter the Navy at age 18. I think she came in in her 20s. She had finished college or had some college. She had a lot of college debt. And that that changed the behavior and the maturity level of the sailors that were in your squadron. So that I, uh, I, I believe that to be a fact. So the average sailor that I would check into my squadron, if I was going to pick uh, just the, the median uh, new check-in, where the stereotype is an 18-year-old kid who didn't have a lot of options and you know, his parents kicked him out of the house who joined the Navy. Like that, is, uh, that, is, that was um, 100% not the case. The average sailor that I would check in had some college, either an associate's or a bachelor's degree. Um, all of them had student debt, and they were between the ages of, uh, of 20 and 24 instead of between the ages of 18 and 22. So the uh, the pervert, the hypothetical squadron that I referred to in the article is my squadron. So I had uh, I still had all of my check-in data. So I looked at those numbers, and over a third of my enlisted sailors had some college, um, and almost everyone that had some college had student debt. So um, about 20% of the of, of my squadron had either their bachelor's or associate's degrees. And most of those people weren't chiefs that had done it over the years. They were they were E5 and below, um, some of whom had finished their bachelor's degree and uh, and then enlisted in the in the United States Navy, which uh, which um, uh, even a generation ago was was not as common. So in America right now, we have over 1.5 trillion with a T trillion dollars in student loans. Uh, that's 600 billion dollars more than the credit card debt. 
Um, and so it's it's a significant problem, which is why you hear people talking about it. And so um, that the, the, that problem, I think, is is a benefit um, with some of the other cultural and uh, and and um, changes. So everybody now with with talks about the gig economy and people not wanting a long term career and wanting to bounce back and forth between careers. Well, that's all great, unless you're sitting on a couple you know, dozen thousand of uh, $60,000 of, of student loans. And so the and mil- without healthcare, without healthcare. So, uh, so yeah, all, all of the, all of those, all of those drivers makes for some people who are, who are already predisposed to serving um, those, those middle-class uh, social mobility uh, options in the Navy make the military, I think a very uh, attractive option for, uh, st- for a lot of people. The military increased the recruitment goal by 13% last year and then still met the goal um, with and it's very competitive still to join without decreasing the quality, despite as you said the uh, the unemployment at three point six percent and the Dow up about twenty percent on the year. So it's a uh, it's 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 an interesting time and uh, and I I, I I think the Navy is not wasting the opportunity, but uh, but it's it's driving a lot of talent towards the force that we're benefiting from. The other thing we can't take for granted is the national mood towards military service. Of course. So I'm old enough to remember the Vietnam era. I lived in the Washington, D.C. area. At the height of the protest movement, um, you know, was at the Washington Monument when uh, there was a violent protest with horse uh, horse police and uh, the yippies and, and the, the whole thing. And was that very much struck me at age nine um, that uh, – and my father at the time was a Marine Corps uh, major. and And so – I remember um, that vibe, that atmosphere, very, very, uh, very distinctly. And and so, when I got to the Naval Academy, summer of 1978, a lot of that had eroded. You know, it wasn't quite a dishonorable or something that the, that the popular culture viewed as uh, a bad choice. But certainly, 9/11 accelerated the the change. Uh, to the idea that it was a laudable choice. And now we see the thank you for your service thing and everybody's a war hero that, you know, whatever you do when you join. So that doesn't hurt against this economic background that you're talking about. It sure does not. Uh, I think the pendulum is swinging. It's not swinging back. It's it's normalizing a little bit. Don't get me wrong. I still get my ten percent discount at Home Depot, uh, <laughs> and I'm and I'm I appreciate them uh, them providing me that. But at the, um, but you're, you're right. The Amer- America has a very positive attitude towards servicemen and women and people who, given full employment, relative uh, basically full employment in the economy, people who still forego those civilian opportunities to go serve in uniform um, get get a lot of positive attention, which which is great. We shouldn't take this for granted. It's more fragile than we think. And you look at what has happened um, around the Gallagher trial. Um, you know, if if this happens enough, people start questioning this categorical uh, characterization of, of military service in a way that happened during, and I very much remember Milai and, and what that did to, you mean this happens, this war crimes and these things happen? How can that, you know? I want American service members to be the good guys. And I look at these Life magazine photos and that's shocking what I'm seeing here, right? So this this thing that we're, this wave that we've been surfing since 9-11 has a shelf life, as Brennan just said, but it's also maybe more fragile and just, we shouldn't take it for granted. Yeah. One other thing, one of the other aspects that you talk about in your article is the, the you term it, the payoff of diversity, uh, particularly the diversity or the diversity of talent that integrating women into the force has provided. Um, 
talk about that a little bit and about about Captain Mariner. Of course. So there is a uh, it's it seems ridiculous now, but as women started to enter the workforce in larger numbers, there was there was people who feared that there would be a huge increase in unemployment as you had more people applying for jobs. And so, hey, if all these women apply for jobs, all these men are going to wind up unemployed. That turned out to be false because the the civilian economy is not a zero-sum game. And so the economy grew and it was a it was a boom to the United States, all of the all of those diversity in, um, initiatives. Internal to the military, what I think is 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 fascinating is that we can't grow the size of the military because the size of the formation is set by Congress. So for every non-white male, if we look at Jack Lucas's military, for every, or Marine Corps, for every non-white male that, that, um, for every woman that joins, that's one male that can't join. And that gets a lot of, uh, that, that uh, can get a lot of pushback. Hey, you know, this woman is taking the, taking the opportunity from a, from a man. I, I, I think the opposite is true. It's not that the, it's, it's, we're replacing not to be crass, we're replacing the bottom 25% of men who want to join the military with the best 25% of women that want to join the military. And the overall talent pool, as you would expect from that, is rising. So you're getting more qualified men and women. I'm sorry, you're getting more qualified men. You're also getting more qualified women. So uh, the, when Captain Mariner, the uh, first woman to uh, to fly jets and land aboard a carrier, she passed away uh, at the age of 65 after, after last year after a long bout with cancer. And uh, and to honor her memory, they did a missing man fly flyover of her funeral uh, with an all female crew. So eight women in uh, in four F eighteen Fs flew over the formation and did great. I'm uh, I'm friends with uh, with two of them, um, and, uh, and and was a flight instructor for another two of the younger ones. So um, I know them personally. And they did an awesome job, and it got a lot of very positive attention. What I didn't think got enough attention was the caliber of of human beings that were in the cockpit. So everybody paid attention to the fact that they were women. But out of the eight women in there, you had a Harvard graduate, two Top Gun graduates, two women selected to command fighter squadrons, uh, four Naval Academy graduates. Out of the four Naval Academy graduates, two of them were aerospace engineers. One was a quantitative economics major. And then uh, a woman who was quoted um, about Commander Mariner a lot was uh, a woman named Lieutenant Commander uh, Block. Um, and she graduated from the Naval Academy as an uh, oceanography major and then went to M- uh, MIT and got her MBA uh, and a master's in aerospace engineering. She's like the most qualified. I've never met her, but she on paper is, uh, is genetically engineered in a lab to fly fighter jets, right? Like she is incredibly, um, has an unbelievable resume. Also, one of the women in that, um, in that flight was the mother of twins. And so if if you just look at them, granted, we uh, we did we we may have cherry picked the best of the best <laughs> to go <laughs> to go by, but if, but anybody who can look at the at the resumes of the eight women that did that flyover and make the argument that hey that uh, these that diversity is not worth the cost because there is a cost to fly, to being on a diverse team. It is it is challenging and there are there are tensions, um, but anybody who can look at the caliber of those women. And say that the 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 diversity initiatives that the Navy has taken on uh, have not been worth it. I think is is completely out to lunch. Um, and and so th- we've I, I personally believe as a as a military we're through. There's still challenges and there's still things we need to train on and work on and make sure we're we're ensuring. But we're we're through the uh, the the 
really challenging time with regards to diversity. And we're starting to see the benefits of, of the increased talent pool, uh, stringent numbers, meeting those standards, and, uh, and really in- increased qu- quality. Where uh, To get back to Jack Lucas, if you wanted to grow the, grow the force in Jack Lucas's time where you're only um, drawing from a pool of white males, to grow the force exponentially after um, Pearl Harbor – you had to deviate in talent. So you had to you had to decrease the talent. Instead, we're keeping the force the same. We've doubled the eligible pool size. And now we're starting to see the benefits of, uh, of increased talent because of those numbers. So it's a, uh, a great time. So I, I knew uh, Rosemary Mariner. She served on the editorial board of the Naval Institute uh, in the mid-90s when I was a lieutenant, when I was the JO rep on the uh, board of control. And the I didn't know that. Board. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and I could I would also point out, and, and I, I was a knuckle-dragon 18-year-old who wasn't sure that women should be at the Naval Academy when I came in in, in 1983. Um, and I, you know, many of my male classmates sort of had those thoughts and there were, there was much of that cultural, um, I don't know what the word for it is, but culturally the Naval Academy had women, but it hadn't really embraced them completely at that time. And I would tell you, I think if you took a a poll of my class now and we're all, you know, there's a Facebook page for the class of 87, one of the things that was most celebrated among our class on that Facebook page recently is uh, our classmate who I think we would all say is the most impressive member of our class. And her name is Sunita Williams or Sunipandia Williams, who's an astronaut, right? Who spent time on the space shuttle, who was at at the top of our class um, and just an amazing person. And, you know, she flew Navy helicopters. She got into the NASA program and all that stuff. And she had a school named for her up in uh, Massachusetts where, where she's from. And we were That's all great. celebrating the fact that, you know, that SUNY has a, uh, you know, a school uh, named for her. And so I, I, I will attest, you know, that in my class, the talent that women brought to our class raised the overall capability and level of our, of our class. Well, this is one of the things that Bill, you and I know from hosting the podcast and we have guests who are Marshall scholars and Rhodes scholars and female nukes and, you know, this sort of thing. We've long since got over the idea that things were better when we were midshipmen, um, in spite of what might happen to our classmates, et cetera. And that's what the internship program here showed us as well. I mean, it's a celebration of diversity um, in, in terms of, uh, of who, who are our interns. They come from all, all races and all, uh, both genders, and, and they're to a man and woman highly impressive, highly motivated, all kind of fire and forget type of people. And so uh, I think what we're saying here is uh, it's, it's okay, old guys. Yeah. <laughs> things are, it, things it, are working out. We were talking earlier about changing the narrative. So the narrative is not, hey, everybody has a right to serve, and so we're going to give these 25% slots to women because everybody has a right to serve. Like, no, that's not that's not what we're looking at. This year in May, 7 out of 10 high school graduates are going to be women. And so – like college graduates. No, I'm sorry. Seven out of 10, uh, uh, high school valedictorians, um, is going to, are going to be women. And so, um, it's, it's about bringing the best people and the most, and the most capable to, in defense of your class, everybody, um, who studies diversity will attest that, Hey, if you have a a team of a hundred people and you bring in one outsider, um, that, that, that strains the team and maybe you don't get the benefits. And that's why I think that we're get, we're now in the payoff where we've, we've lived through the strain and now it's, it's, it's normalized. The numbers are enough that it's not out. It's not out of the normal to have 
um, a woman in your squadron, a woman on your submarine, a woman as valedictorian or, uh, or, or leading the brigade of midshipmen. That's all been totally normalized. And so now we're not dealing as much with the strain and of, of being a part or leading a diverse team. And instead we're, we're, and I've, I saw this as a skipper is, is we're just reaping the benefits and just, uh, and, and we're getting incredibly, we're growing the force and getting better as opposed to growing the force and getting, and getting worse. And so it's a, uh, it's, it's a great time to be an officer and a great time to be a leader in the military um, with such talented people coming in. Well, you, you mentioned female submariners. That was predicted to be something that was going to be a disaster by the critics. Um, it's been massively successful. Um, we've talked to a number of, of the pioneers of female integration uh, with with some being submariners. Um, they're actually oversubscribed now. There, there aren't enough billets for the demand. Um, and so I think if you look at that, and maybe that's something we should do before too long and sort of look at that the, the three years that have happened with female integration aboard submarines. And, uh, you know, it's a success. And I think if you talk about readiness, you talk about talent per capita, it's nothing but better than it was before. Yeah, that's a good point. We, we know that uh, Mary Claire Ray, one of our midshipmen summer interns, class of 20, uh, who was with us last summer and, and did some writing for us. And uh, so she's a firstie here at the Naval Academy. And she was able to, you know, when she came to us last summer, she said, I really want to be a submariner. She'd been on a on a submarine for her summer cruise as a firstie. A fast attack. A, a which fast attack. Do, doesn't that's right. have female integration that's right. yet. That's right. And, right. So uh, she got to see a, that. A Virginia class. Yep. And uh, so uh, sailed from Hawaii to Alaska last summer. And, and loved it, came in and said, I want to be a submariner. And then she told us, she said, but the competition for those billets for women here at the Naval Academy is really hot. Oh, they, yeah. they have, <laughs> That's great, like, right? It's two, great. Two, well, uh, the Navy benefits. That's right. your yeah. point. Two or three to one. Yes. And, and you know, she's w- high up in her class. Yeah. And even despite that was not sure that she was going to get a chance to be a submariner, but she, we did hear that she service selected submarines and she's nice. over the moon about it, which is great. Yeah. We should, maybe we, and we should also say that she was mentored by Lieutenant Megan Moyette, who was a history department instructor, who was our point of contact for the internship and also our first OREP for the profession extracurricular activity. So the female sub community has done it right in terms it's like taking a, a page out of the Marine Corps playbook with who do you bill it here to influence the right kind of mids. So this, again, it's a success story end to end. Yeah. We also put, uh, MC in touch with Andrea Howard, Lieutenant Howard, who's written for us several times, won some uh, essay contests for us. Been a guest on the podcast. Been a guest Calling in the- from England, where she was doing her right. Marshall Scholarship right. at Oxford. And, and she is now a JO on the USS Ohio. Uh, yeah. out in uh, the, the Washington uh, state area, right? So she's a JO, fully qualified submariner wearing dolphins, uh, yeah. class of 2015 grad. And when MC came in as one of our summer interns last year and mentioned that she wanted to be a submarine, I said, okay, I'm going to put you in touch with Andrea. Andrea re- replied to the email uh, within a day and, you know, helped, you know, bring her along and, and convince her, you know, not that she needed convincing, but, but, um, Confirmed for her that yeah you absolutely want to do this this is uh, this is a great great career choice. So the last portion of your article that we're talking about, Brendan, is called "Kids These Days." So right. all this has been to say, as you point out, things are fine. You know, we're that that we're not maybe breeding because of the 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 situation, the uh, Jack Lucases of the world, but that's not entirely a bad thing. I agree. Um, and things are things are going fine. So yeah, the really. so there's in the uh, the difference between proceedings and naval history is uh, is we're doing policy and trying to drive the future. If if with all of these good news stories that we're saying, there are a couple things that I hope people are asking questions and looking forward. Uh, there are retention 
challenges with having more women in the military, especially with regards to raising a family um, and then and and dual military couples. Um, and we've had that conversation on the podcast. Who was our guest that we had was, some time ago? It was a female lieutenant commander. Was it Hakiko? So no, Ken no, and her- Ashley Akiko are a dual military couple who have done some like great research and writing on this. Both did the career intermission program together, um, have a beautiful family. He's a skipper and uh, she works in second fleet. So there's a lot of good examples that the Navy is trying I, I know who it was. It was uh, Allison Maruka. Yes, Allie Maruka. that's exactly who it was. Yeah. yeah. So that we uh, entreat the audience to listen to that episode because yep. it's pretty definitive about what you're talking about you in terms it. of the challenges. So the other one on that is um, is is on-base child care. Like if you're going to do this, hey, we need you need to you need to go all in and, and expect that these people that you're bringing into the service are going to serve long careers and uh, and and there's 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 differences to that and then socially as a, all of these tailwinds I talk about with with the middle class hey hopefully as a country we can solve those but if we do solve them how will that affect uh, recruiting and uh, and retention so the state of Tennessee the volunteer state which has a, a disproportionately high amount of enlistment um, they've gone to free college. So free college, uh, community college is free in the state of Tennessee. And I don't think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of research being done on whether or not that's affecting military recruitment, which, which I think will be interesting. If healthcare, if we get healthcare under control as a country, um, maybe that will change. If somebody comes in and waives all student debt, uh, which I don't think will happen, but people are making noise about, Hey, we should be, we should be leaning forward in the straps as a Navy and looking at these societal issues that we're benefiting from. And frankly, we should be rooting as a country that all of those get solved. But if they do get solved, how will that change our, our, our force? And so hopefully uh, we have uh, we have smart people um, thinking and reading and writing about that. Great. Well, this has uh, just been a fun conversation because we've sort of started off with World War II, Iwo Jima, uh, the story of Jack Lucas, which is just an amazing story of a 14-year-old who who uh, you know ends up in uh, in Iwo Jima, Medal of Honor recipient, uh, and then sort of weaved our way through this conversation about where the current force is and the status of enlistment and recruitment and retention in the Navy and the Marine Corps. Uh, and where, you know, women in the, in the military, uh, diversity, how that's impacted quality of, of human talent in the, in the services. And, uh, you wanted to mention one more thing at the end. Here. So there is that intangible piece of, uh, of the Jack Lucas story. Do we, do people still have the willingness to do what it takes to, uh, to win a, in a violent conflict? And I think over the last 12 months, uh, we tragically seen examples of that. Um, my, the one that, uh, that is the most tragic and I'll give coming up on army week, I'll give West Point credit. Um, during the Parkland school shooting, a JROTC student by the name of Peter Wang, who's a Chinese immigrant. He was wearing his JROTC uniform. Um, and he was holding the door open to help his classmates escape when he was shot and killed. Um, and he was the first person posthumously accepted into West Point in the cl- the West Point class of 2025. So he wanted to grow up to uh, join the Army, and West Point did the right thing and welcome him. Uh, I wish that was a single data point, but there's actually three data points that make a line. Uh, a year later, a guy by the name of Riley Howell, who's an ROTC student at N- North Carolina, was killed in a school shooting um, when he was also defending his classmates. His uh, his police gave him credit uh, with knocking him off his feet and disarming the, sh- the shooter. And a guy by the name of Brendan Bailey out at a STEM school in Colorado had already enlisted in the Marine Corps under the delayed entry program and uh, and was going to go to uh, Paris Island the day after he graduated when he was shot and killed during a school shooting um, and uh, and also buried with uh, with full military honor. So while it's hard to uh, it's hard to replicate the circumstances of Iwo Jima. Um, 
obviously uh, I, I'm not worried about, uh, about our, the, uh, the young generation being willing to do what it takes to uh, sacrifice themselves and put, uh, put other people's lives ahead of their own. So um, I'm pretty happy with, uh, with the, uh, the direction the country is headed and the military is headed uh, despite what everybody would, uh, it's easy to be cynical about it, but uh, we've got a lot of great things going for, for us. And uh, it's a great time to be a leader in the military with uh, some great people coming in that Jack Lucas would surely still be proud of. Fantastic. Well, Brennan, it's always great to have you here in Beach Hall, whether you're leading the editorial uh, board or here as a podcast guest. I know uh, you're not unhappy to be out of uh, the EEOB where you're working there on the uh, Vice President's National Security Council. Um, So it's great to have you. Thank you for everything you do for the Independent Forum. And uh, we'll hope to have you on the show again very soon. Thank you so much for all you guys are doing. It's uh, an honor to be a part of this great organization. All right, we'll catch you all again uh, tomorrow with that special story about uh, Navy football leading into the Army-Navy game that Ward's going to inter- uh, talk to the coach and the, and the quarterback. And then we'll catch you next week with an interview with uh, Lieutenant Commander Jeff Vandenagel, who was the first prize winner in the Rising Historian category of the CNO Naval History Essay Contest. His article is also in the December issue of Proceedings. Look for it. It is an amazing story, lessons learned from... Uh, from the the British uh, Royal Navy experience in the Falklands War uh, played forward into uh, some lessons that could apply to the U.S. Navy operating in places like the South China Sea in the future. So that wraps up this episode. Victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll catch you next week.